Arts and Sciences at the University of North Carolina at Pembroke. In 30 brief minutes, we'll give you something interesting to think about. You can easily receive our new episodes by subscribing to our program on iTunes and Podbean. The topic for today is the mysteries of the human body. In this episode, the Dean of the College of Arts and Sciences, Jeff Frederick, is joined by Dr. Courtney Carroll and Dr. Crystal Walleen from the UNCP Department of Biology, and Dr. Todd Telmico, founding dean of the UNCP College of Health Sciences. Now get ready for 30 Brave Minutes. Across the landscape of facts that may come in handy at the next cocktail party or when watching Jeopardy are any number of items about the uniqueness of the human body. Blood, for example, probably makes up about 8%, give or take, of your total body weight. Skin probably accounts for about 15%. Eye muscles can fire faster than most any other human muscle. A human heart beats about 3 billion times over the course of a typical life. Your nose may be able to detect a trillion different smells. Bone marrow and hair grow faster than most anything else in your body, and your small intestine unwrapped might be about 23 feet long. And here's one that I'm not sure what to do with. If all the saliva your body produced in a lifetime was captured, it could fill a couple of swimming pools. Useful information? Maybe not, but it does open up a lens into the mysteries of the human body. In some sense, I wonder how much we really know about the body. New innovations in academic research, medicine, equipment, and imaging have unlocked some fascinating new features and benefits of the body. But for each new piece of the code we crack, it opens up a new mystery. Maybe it's sort of like being in one of those escape rooms with a bunch of friends, and you're trying desperately to unlock the mysteries one at a time to find enough clues to get out. But with each new clue you uncover, you have a new riddle to solve. Life expectancy 100 years ago was in the late 40s or early 50s for the typical American. Any number of reasons accounted for this. Dangerous and demanding physical jobs in agriculture or industry. Transportation challenges which prevented many Americans from receiving primary, behavioral, or therapeutic care, even if they could afford it. Pregnancy and birth control realities and a comparative paucity of medical schools, hospitals, and other training and care facilities. It's also true that 100 years ago, we didn't have electroencephalograms, arthroscopic surgery, dialysis, ultrasound, prenatal vitamins, much in the way of antibiotics, or much in the way of transplantable organs or prosthetic limbs. Academic and medical research helps us learn something new about the body all the time. Primary care providers use this information to develop new theories or modalities of care. And then durable medical equipment companies, researchers, and pharmaceutical companies develop prototypes and products to implement these new ideas. Finally, if all goes well, we impact the patient and sleep well knowing something good came out of the end process. When it works right, the process unlocks a mystery of the human body or helps us to get something out of the way that's preventing the body from helping or healing itself. Joining us today to talk about the mysteries of the body are Courtney Carroll, Crystal Walleen, and Todd Telmeco. Welcome. Thank you for having us. Hi, thanks. So how did each of you get started studying the body? Tell us your own story and which elements of the body and how they work have been most interesting to you. Um, let's see. So I got started in studying the body probably after I was in college and my youngest brother was hit by a car. And uh, in that process of being hit by a car, he had an external fixator. 
and it became my job to turn the screws on the fixator, so maybe it was a little sadistic, but um, I became curious about the healing process and how metal interacts with the bone, and I was curious how the body responds after a hole's put in it, a drill goes through it, and a screw gets turned over and over again. I started getting interested in that. As a consequence, then I went to physical therapy school because I got in, into uh, the idea of healing and helping people recover. And then while in PT school, I discovered anatomy for the first time, gross anatomy, and got a PhD in anatomy because all of a sudden, the body and its beauty and its wonder were opened up to me in, in a lab. And I started thinking about how one thing relates to another and how uh, when you study the body, you might learn by systems initially, musculoskeletal, osteology, things like that, uh, neurology. But I was more interested in macroanatomy and how one joint affected another joint when I moved it. And uh, I just became fascinated with it at that time. So uh, I continued to get a PhD, and then I taught it for, I think, 16 years. And your brother survived the care that you provided him. <laughs> to, 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 uh, I guess I was hoping he wouldn't at the time, but he did. <laughs> um, yeah, no, but I think also in that experience, you know, that's where the health practitioner came out, right? In, in, in a how the body healing affects growth and development. And my, my, my youngest brother was uh, so had growth plates. And so he had long-term effects from this injury. And so I, I began to think about how that process happened. So it also not only opened my interest in the human body, but as a healthcare practitioner. How about the rest of y'all? Yeah, so I also got interested from a disease perspective. When I was in, I would say, middle school, my grandmother was diagnosed with Alzheimer's. And at the time, and still to this day, there really wasn't much that they could do. Um, we, you know, tried to take care of her the best we could, but I became interested in, in what was happening to her at a cellular level, what was happening inside her brain. Um, so I went to, when I went to undergrad, I majored in biochemistry. I was really looking at the proteins and, and those interactions. Um, and then I went from there and got a PhD in neuroscience and spent the rest of my research career really looking at aging neurons and what happens to these cells as we get older, as we face disease insults and, and other stressors and how we can prevent some of those age-related and disease-related decline. Um, I don't have a really like pivotal <laughs> story. Um, mine's a little bit different. I, I like to tell my students that I accidentally became a biologist and I, I mean that quite literally. I had no intention ever of becoming a biologist. I picked my undergrad because I wanted to be a music major <laughs> and decided I didn't want to be a starving artist. So I got interested in psychology and majored in experimental psychology. Decided to do a chem minor for fun because that's just the kind of person I am. And uh, one of my psych professors said, hey, you're really smart. You should go to graduate school. And when I started to think about what I wanted to do, I wanted to do something that could do psych and, and chemistry together. So I applied to neuroscience programs and um, was admitted and did my PhD in um, uh, molecular pharmacology with a specialization in neuroscience. And all my research was like in a dish with cells over and over and over and over again, the same experiments with cells. And um, I decided I wanted to do something a little bit, you know, more directly related to like, you know, bedside care, not just working in a dish with cells. I, I wanted to, you know, at least work in like a modern organism or... As exciting uh, as the dish work yeah, was. Yeah, you know, I wanted like a whole like, you know, animal to work with. So I decided to do uh, my postdoctoral research in immunology. And that's how I really got 
um, interested in studying um, the human body and studying how the immune system works. And uh, then I eventually became <laughs> trained in biology in a really long, convoluted way. I think it's funny how your, your, your uh, experience started from a, uh, a micro level yeah. and wanted to work up. Mine started at a, at a, a macro level and down from function. Because uh, I started as a physical therapist yeah. and then got a PhD in anatomy. And my, and my uh, PhD was in uh, cellular biology. So <laughs> I wanted to go all the way down to the cell into a petri dish and look at microsystems and just see how they function. So it's interesting how we all come to the body from different perspectives and approach in different ways. I think there's a book for the three of you all to yeah. write together about <laughs> your experiences at uh, different levels. So talk about something that's really interesting and fascinating about the human body. Um, what remarkable characteristic about some measure of it really just sort of uh, are things that lay folks like uh, me wouldn't know? I think for me, as an anatomist, I, I teach gross anatomy, cadaveric anatomy and dissection, and I don't think there's a, a year that has gone by with a cadaver that I haven't learned something new. You would think that in the world, the body we put together fairly similarly, and it is, but there's so many uh, variations of the same thing. And I've never ceased to be amazed by, oh, there's a new, it looks like a new muscle, but someone's already found it. It's, it's occurred somewhere else, but they're rare. Mm -hmm. And it just amazes me that the beauty of the organism as a whole, when you break it down, it is so unique at every level. Even at the macro level, when you see a different muscle or a different arrangement of a blood supply, that's the one that gets students the most. Is <laughs> blood supply never looks like we draw it on the board. There's always a variation, one, two, and three. And, and what's interesting about that is you think then about healthcare professionals, and I think surgeons most of all. So they're going, they're cutting your body open, you're, you're alive, and they're supposed to know their normal anatomy so they don't cut the wrong thing, when about 35% of the time, perhaps, it might be different than they expect. And so it's... You know, kudos to them, because I think they have to be experts on a lot of different things, and I, I'm just always amazed at uh, how those two things interplay with one another. I always like to think about uh, some of the, the pop science that you hear about in movies. I don't know the name of this movie, but there was a movie that came out in the past, I would say, five years about people who use... 100% of their brain, quote-unquote. Oh, do you know, what, do you know what it was called? I can't remember. I do remember. Yeah. Limitless or something. Something yeah. like that. And how that the premise behind the movie was that normal people, we just use 10% of our brains. But if we could only use 100% of our brains, we would have these like magical powers. And I always like to explain to my students that if we only use 10% of our brains, then strokes wouldn't be a big deal, mm. right? Because 90% of the time, they would hit one of these like filler areas <laughs> And you would just keep walking and be fine. Nice. Yeah. Um, but no, like you, you use 100% of your brain, which is why brain injuries and, and all of that is, is, is detrimental. Um, but yeah, pop science always gets me. Strangely enough, I, uh, I actually taught my example that I'm going to talk about on the podcast today in class. And it's <laughs> that the, um, the eyeball is immune privileged. So what that means is that it's not accessible to the cells that patrol your body looking for foreign things like bacteria and viruses. Um, there are cells that go around and try to get rid of these bad things or that will get rid of dead cells or dying cells. And within the structure of the eyeball, 
the immune system cells don't have access. And uh, you never really think about this unless you're in a situation where you'd like them to have access. And the example I tell my students is a couple years ago, my dad had a retinal detachment. And he, you know, all of a sudden had visual disturbances and was really disoriented. And he, he started feeling queasy and sick to his stomach. And he was just feeling all these weird things. And what he was seeing was blood pouring into the inside of his eyeball, mm. kind of like from the inside out. And he was really disappointed to find out that those blood cells were going to be there for a really long time. Now there's the movie we should make. Yeah. Um, <laughs> much better science. Because those immune cells, those macrophages, can't get inside the eye to eat those blood cells and get rid of them. And, and he's complained many times about the snow globe effect that he has. That every time he moves his head, all these blood cells, they... they they get stirred up, and he's got blurred vision in that eye. And his, his doctor told him it would take about six months for them to clear up. And I, I giggled, and I told him that he was just telling him what he wanted to hear. And it would probably take a lot longer. And I gave him an estimate of a couple years, and he's two years out, and he still has mm. uh, some occasional floaters. Wow. So, yeah. Well, with all of the challenges that people face with one ailment or another, it's remarkable how resilient the body is. I'm sort of laboring under this impression, please correct me, that the body fixes so many things that we don't necessarily even know that's going on. But I am really fascinated by this idea of resilience. Talk about how resilient the organism itself is um, in the way it can fix itself. I think... Um stroke patients and, and because I think there's a window of opportunity you know when you lose brain cells uh, whether it's hemorrhagic or ischemic you lost a portion of your brain but you can still relearn to do things and to me that's just amazing that despite the fact that you in some cases lost a large portion of my brain I can still function I can still do things it may not look as pretty as we're used to but the body can recover to the point where I can function day to day and and, and I'm still just amazed at that process and how um, you know, we used to think that window of opportunity was very, very narrow. And we're learning now that it's really, it can be elongated and, and prolonged a little bit that you can get more gains with the right amount of therapies, which I, I look for the future that as we begin to even extend that window even further. So we're not limited to a, maybe a four month or a, I'm sorry, a, a six week window of recovery that we actually get longer changes and can really improve function. And I just think that's amazing how that happens. I also think about um, how often do we hurt ourselves? Uh, you, you know, you may you, you trip off a curb. It's not a major yeah. issue, but you know there's some tissue damage just from that little thing. But you continue to walk on like there's no problem. You don't lose your balance. You don't fall. There's not a major catastrophe. You just kind of deal with it. And your body is just, your, your brain is able to say, okay, that system's out. Let me just click on this one and keep going. Like it's nothing. And it's just amazing that there's always this threshold that has to occur before we truly as an organism recognize there's a problem here. And I'm still fascinated every day by that process. One of the things that I think about is how many um, kind of compensatory mechanisms there are. And I guess that bounces a little, a little bit off of what you were saying, that there's a lot of different ways that your body regulates blood pressure. And so if, you know, your blood pressure starts to fall because one of those you know, systems is a little out, out of balance. There are other mechanisms in place that can compensate to, to bring your blood pressure 
back up and like healing is is you know a, a great um, kind of example that you know cuts and scrapes and bruises and all these different things your body just kind of like takes care of it on its own and you don't really have to do too much about it maybe cover it and keep it clean and you know your body will pretty much take care of it even even stressors that we think of as a really big deal like I'm the kind of person I need to eat like every three hours you know just for my sanity but technically your body could go a real long time without food you know you think of those people who went on hunger strikes for for 21 days yeah, yeah. weeks and you know but yeah it wasn't great but but their body could keep going um doesn't need to eat every three hours i remind my cats of that yeah that they have subcutaneous fat and they're not their storage yeah. yeah they'll mm -hmm. be okay Please don't tell me what they tell you. <laughs> so a couple of y'all brought up healing. So I want to talk a little bit about that. If you can, describe for us, you know, a, a very simple thing. I fell down and I skinned my knee or my elbow, whichever you want. What does the body start doing? What is it, how does that process work from I got a boo-boo all the way <laughs> to the scar is no longer even visible? Yeah, I'd love to fill that in for you. Um, so essentially the first thing that's going to happen is that you'll, you'll tear, you'll damage the tissue. So let's say you scraped your knee and it's bleeding. Um, you're going to scrape through the skin, which has two different layers. And in the, the second, the deeper layer, the dermis, uh, that has a good blood supply. So when you tear that tissue, you're also going to be tearing that blood supply. Um, the bleeding uh, will cause a, a blood clot to form. Um, and so uh, we call that a hematoma, or you can call it a blood clot. And, um, and then after that, the body will go in and try to patch the wound. Um, it's, it's really good at, at patching wounds very quickly with connective tissue. Is the brain kind of directing all this, or is this just like in, just what's, what's, involuntarily happen? Well, it's involuntary, but it's so dictated by your brain and chemicals. And, and you have the autonomic nervous system responding to that injury. And at first it says, okay, let's dump some blood in here. Okay, that's enough. Let's cut that off. Yeah. And, you know, it, it's just so precise, and you don't even think about it. Mm -hmm. You just don't even think about it. But all these intricate little events are happening yeah. at the same time, telling which cells to arrive when. It's a timing event. You know, it's just amazing um, how that happens. And, and just the – I love the autonomic nervous system. I just – I can't <laughs> imagine uh, coordinating that event because, you know, the two systems working together, fight or flight – all of a sudden you get an injury, one takes over and says, let's restore this. It's just, and that's a neural level. That doesn't even count the cellular level that's happening. And all these different systems are coordinating that little scrape. Yeah. Here. You've got your integument, which is your, the system that contains your skin and all your skin appendages. The immune system's there to make sure that, uh, like, any bacteria that got in, those are going to get eaten up by those macrophages and eliminated. Those cells are secreting cytokines, which yeah. are chemicals. They're like, they're like little trails, chemical trails that other cells will follow. And that's how they know that they need to go to the wound. And so fibroblasts will follow those chemicals and they'll, they'll secrete proteins that lay down connective tissue, or we, we call it scar tissue. It's and, really scaffolding, right? It's yeah. really kind of scaffolding to repair that injury. Yeah. And then depending on, on whether that response is normal or abnormal, it becomes a scar or not a scar. But scars are, uh, is a four-letter word, right? It's one of those four-letter words. Yeah. Scars are normal, you know, and so is inflammation. Um, 
Those are normal processes that happen. But every said the word scar, and they freak out. Scars should happen. Scars need to happen. But you need to remodel them. It, it's the remodeling yeah. piece that has to happen. It's that next step that's occurred. So when that fibroblast says, okay, that's enough, and now I'm going to release the cells that eat that up yep. to lay down the right stuff that can respond to the stress that the skin has to deal with. It's but really neat. I love what y'all are describing. I love the timing of it, how it just sort of, on the, it's like each new domino falls and it just unlocks. It has a self-check. Do I have enough? Yes, you do. No, I don't. Let's have a little bit more. And then the next domino falls and all of these processes just unfold, you know, outside of our understanding. There's kind of all these like chemical checks and balances that are in place. And, and once you hit that certain balance, then the next step starts. And, and is all that happening on the neuronal level? I mean, there is neural involvement, but I think the most fascinating thing is that a lot of these are programmed within the cells themselves. So these are, are processes that are unfolding um, based purely at a cellular level. Um, and so they're regulating themselves, they're going through checkpoints, they're going through systems to make sure that we reach that, that sweet spot, that perfect balance for, for all well, of this. Well, let's change the problem. So I didn't just skin my knee. <laughs> I turned my ankle running or, God forbid, I, I was in a car accident. And so there's something major structural how does the body start that process? And then when, you know, in Todd, to, to you, when is it that experts come in to help retrain the body in terms of how to, to change the way it works? Uh, you know, I think about, let's take the sprained ankle. I mean, everybody knows about sprained ankle. And, <laughs> um, you know, the first thing, the same actually processes apply. It's, it, what's interesting about that is while a, a cut and a sprained ankle, really one's external, you can see it, one's internal. And so those same processes are going on just to maybe a large degree, depending on the extent of the injury. Even with bone breaks, right. too. It's the just, healing process it's for really a, not, a fracture is very similar. Yeah. Right? But there's really a similar process. They may last a couple different days. I mean, when I remember the charts, that it, whether it's bone <laughs> healing or tendon healing or muscle healing, mm -hmm. there's a different time frame. But the processes in general are the same. The same cytokines are released. The same chemicals are released. The same process happens. The same cells are involved. The, the issue is... Um, with when we talk about larger injuries is, as you said, when do you bring in a health professional? That's when you become out of those windows. Let's say a typical inflammation phase, the first phase, is supposed to last anywhere from three to seven days depending on the injury and the tissue involved. Well, if seven days, we're still in inflammatory response, there's something else going on. And that's when a professional can come in and say, you know, we need to either uh, back off here or add this to it to help it get through the process. Because inflammation is good to a point, Chronic inflammation is not, and, and so, because then we get scar tissue that's laid down too long, or the cytokines are there too long to stimulate those fibroblasts, and they dump out the wrong collagen. And, and last time I checked, there's what, 16 collagen? Oh, there's way too, many. Way too I, many. I, now, I right? have forgotten how many there and, are. And so, you think about that, the n collagen, a, a single fiber in many different formats, and each one has a different um, uh, properties. So specialized function. Yeah, yeah. And so if you lay down the wrong one, it becomes stiff. If you lay down the right one, it does the right thing. And so and it's just not that one. It's elastin. It's fibrin. It's all those things together. And so those healthcare practitioners are coming in to make sure that we're going to follow a prescribed plan and, and that we stay on track for that. So something's got off kilter and yeah. they're making sure that things that they can figure out what did and take some um, measures to get back on schedule so that the the, the right elements of the body are firing on its own. Right. And I think also with age, depending on the age of the person, um, 
you know, young kids recover faster, right? They do a better job, their bodies are more resilient. The older you are, you may need a little assistance in there or a little extra protection to let the healing process happen because your processes are slower. Yeah, you heal slower. Yeah. The immune system doesn't work as well, well when you're older. Uh, another thing, my parents lament <laughs> to me. Well, there's also the problem of people not, not always listening, listening to their bodies, you right. know? You might know, okay, this is hurting. I should probably be in the rest phase still, you know, resting and icing and all of that. And you might say, well, I'm, I'm just going to, I'm going to tough it out. I'm just going to, you know, keep doing my normal activity, keep running on it. Keep, it'll get better. It'll get better. It'll get better. It did when I was, you know, five years ago this happened. It got better in a week. So we're at a week. I'm just going to, I'm just going to keep going. So this brings up an interesting point. I, I had a student real life recently that had a concussion Oof. and was told to rest. Don't go to class. Don't study. Something students are just waiting for somebody <laughs> to tell them, you know. And um, I told the student, yeah, that's really important. You have to let your brain heal. And you're kind of the neuroscience mm -hmm. expert, you know. Walk us through why it's so important to not push yourself when you have a concussion and let the brain heal. I mean, concussions are, are a big deal. I think we're only just starting to realize how big of a deal concussions are, especially when we talk about athletes who might be getting repeated concussions. You know, we really don't want it to enter that, that TBI threshold, that traumatic brain injury threshold. Because while your brain is resilient to a certain extent, and there is this plasticity is the term we use where different parts of the brain can adopt or pick up these new functions, um, to a certain extent, you can't, you can't do it all. Um, and so you, you really need to give, your time, give yourself time to have the tissue help and heal. Um, neurons, in particular, are very high energy demand. So they're going to take a lot of energy, a lot of resources in their normal firing, but even more so when they're in an injured state. Um, so giving yourself a, a low brain burden is, is really going to help. Also, in today's world, that's difficult, right? I mean, oh, you know, yeah. back when I was a kid, we didn't have all these phones it's walking the around. Phones. You know, yeah. We didn't have all the technology. Now kids are exposed to all that stimulus all the time, 24-7, and just to get their brain to stop is, I think, one of the most difficult tasks we have. Putting away the phone for that light, too, yeah. especially. We should do that in here, right? I know. You're yeah, blue light. <laughs> that's, an, that's another podcast we should do. Talking about sleep. This is Chancellor Robbie Cummings, and I want to thank you for listening to 30 Brave Minutes. Our faculty and students provide expertise, energy, and passion driving our region forward. Our commitment to Southeastern North Carolina has never been stronger through our teaching, our research, and our community outreach. I want to encourage you to consider making a tax-deductible contribution to the College of Arts and Sciences at the University of North Carolina at Pembroke. With your help, we will continue our impact for generations to come. You can donate online at uncp.edu slash give. Thanks again for listening. Now back to more 30 Brave Minutes. Service of the College of Arts and Sciences at UNC Pembroke. I'm Jeff Frederick, and my guests today are Crystal and Courtney and Todd, and we're talking about the mysteries of the human body. What what would you love to see some new research on next? What what is the next mystery that that motivates you? You would like to see unlocked. I think the brain. I mean, I know I've been talking about brains this whole time, but. I think the brain is, is really one of the last frontiers of the body. The immune system. Well, okay. 
let's say, maybe we'll say the brain and the immune system are some of the last frontiers of the body. You know, just just because in part uh, we've just now reached a place with technology that we can actually study what's happening in the brain um, with some of the imaging technology that we have. Whereas even even five ten years ago, it wasn't good enough to really see what was happening in real time in different situations. Um, and so there's still there's still a lot we don't know. Yeah, the immune system too. <laughs> yeah. So there's um, there's part of your immune system that knows how to tell the difference between what's your body, what's normal to you and your body, and then what's foreign. And in immunology, we call this self versus non-self um, discrimination. But your immune system is trained from the time that you're developing in utero to, to learn to be able to figure out, does this cell belong to me? Is it safe for it to be here? Or is this cell foreign? Is this cell foreign? Do I need to kill it and get rid of it? And that's how we fight infections. Um, but we don't understand how the, the body loses control over that. And when it loses control over that, um, it can develop diseases called autoimmune diseases where your body mistakenly thinks that part of yourself is foreign and dangerous and starts attacking it. And so depending on which tissue that is um, will determine what type of autoimmune disorder you have. Um, and so most people are familiar with multiple sclerosis, and that's when the immune system attacks the central nervous system, the brain and the spinal cord. So in immunology, there's these ongoing things about selection and identification of cells and then signaling for what to do with it. And then on top of that, maybe even the body's ability to execute the signal for what to do with this cell. Yeah, and a lot of it is, is regulation too. Like, um, you know, if, if there's a cell that is going rogue and it's, it's trying to attack, you know, let's say your uh, cell in your brain, there should be other cells that come in and, and regulate that process and say, no, 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 that's a brain cell, leave it alone. Um, and we really don't understand those processes of what's, what step is breaking down and why that regulation, those checkpoints aren't happening. Todd, what fascinates you? I'm a little different. I mean, the cellular stuff is very interesting. I mean, I did a cellular basis PhD, but as I move on, I think there's really, when I look at the literature, there really seems to be a gap between basic science concepts and then treatment options and really understanding what happens to get, to bring those two together, what I would call translational research. And, you know, we often, pro we provide treatments, especially in my world in rehab sciences, we're often prescribing techniques which on one end from an outcome point of view, the patient's getting better, but we don't know why. And I would love to see that, that bridge change. And I think it's gonna come with technology because what's difficult is how to study that in vivo, in the body, while the healing's happening and really understand that process. Um, you know, we can't pull the petri dish out, we can do some draws, but really to see that process in vivo would be fascinating to bridge that gap. That, that's what I'm looking for, that translational research. Um, and to me, that's critical. And, and you're starting to see it with technology. Imaging is helping. New imaging techniques are really helping that. Um, but I think we can find new markers that we can see in different ways are gonna help that process as well. So if I hear you right, right now we're able to see what the body does before and after, and then we can sort of extrapolate what happens, but we can't really see it as it's happening in real time. Exactly, when I, I'll give you a quick example. We, in, in my world of physical therapy, we do a lot of things called joint mobilizations. And, and we think that depending on how much force I apply, 
I'm, I'm stimulating fibroblasts at one point to lay down in the correct way. Now, I don't really know that to be true. It, it sounds good on the concept. I know my patient's range of motion gets better. I know they function better. But I really don't know at the cellular level whether I've actually stimulated fibroblasts to lay that fiber down in the right direction. You need a report. Yeah, I, send yeah, a report yeah, to yeah, my cell phone to let me know yeah, how the exactly, fibroblast was. Exactly, it, and and it was funny because my research was on that. You know, I took I took little cells and I put them on a stretcher, a little look like a medieval stretcher <laughs> in a petri dish. He racked see. his cells. I did. I racked my cells, <laughs> and I would turn them on these little rubber stretchers and to see if the direction of, of tension dictated the way the fibers laid down. I don't know if that really translated in into the body though. I do know on on a piece of rubber. I can get it to lay down a certain way, and I can get certain chemicals to be released. But I don't know if that translates into the into an actual hands-on application. Yeah, there, of, we have a long way to go for that bench to bedside yeah. research. You know, getting getting stuff from the conceptual phase or the molecular or the cellular to how does this fix a disease or how does this make the body work better. A lot of those issues too come down to the models that we use. Right. If you think about the types of diseases that we seem to have a pretty good handle on. Those are the diseases that the system in humans is similar enough to the system in mice and rats yeah. that the model is appropriate. Right. You know, you think of cardiac function, right? We can model cardiac dysfunction really well in certain animal models, and we get an understanding of what's happening. We can screen drugs. We can make advances. But you think about the systems where... We, we don't know what's happening. The immune system, the, yeah. the nervous system, that's when the model falls apart. Right. Well, we, um, we study that by, you know, taking a brain out and studying the brain or yeah. taking a, a spleen out, which is a, an immune system organ, and studying it. But it's really hard to get patients to donate their brain and their <laughs> spleen to you so that you can you can study it. And mm -hmm. I think you can imagine why that is. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah even I can figure that out. <laughs> all right, so uh, last question. This has been a, a great discussion. So we're with all of what you all individually and collectively know about the body, give our listeners either one thing we should do more of that would help our body to do good things, or your glass of water can be half empty. <laughs> one thing we should stop doing or do more regularly in moderation uh, in order to prevent the body from breaking down. Sleep. One that answer is sleep. That's what I got in there early. Uh, it's on both sides. I, I think we need to sleep more. I think you need to get those seven to nine hours. Mm -hmm. Your body needs that to rest at all cellular levels, whatever system we're talking about, and we need to do more of it. I would add to that, since you stole that from me, I'm going to piggyback on that. I would add that we, not only do we need more sleep, we need more quality of sleep. Mm -hmm. um, quantity is not enough. And so, you know, we kind of briefly mentioned earlier the blue light that your electronic devices gives off. That actually um, can alter some of your um, hormones in your body, and it prevents you from getting into those deep stages of sleep where that, that repair and and the refreshing aspects of, um, of rest really come into play. And so, you know, improving quality and quantity of sleep, mm -hmm. yeah, I totally second that. I, I think, honestly, most people know what you're supposed to be doing. It's just not always the fun stuff, you know? Like, the, the data on red wine and chocolate is mixed at best, <laughs> I would say. I know it's not that fault. But we're happy to follow uh, that, right? The coffee, I really, I, I bookmark any coffee study I can find because I'm 
I'm drinking about four cups a day. But no, the, the stuff that you know is good for you, exercise, eat right, eat a lot of plants, you know, eat a high fiber diet, get out there, get as much exercise, you know, as your schedule allows you to, that's the stuff that's going to help you. And also maintain your social relationships, especially as we age in today's society, a lot of people are, are more and more isolated. And there's a lot of research that shows that maintaining social connections and staying part of, of a community group is one of the best things you could do for yourself as you get older. Well, I yeah. think that adds to the community pieces you learn from other people. Right? Yeah. Because I remember before I was really, uh, you know, meat, meat and potatoes, right? And that's what I grew up on. I knew <laughs> yeah, that's all I ate. proper Midwestern diet. Right, exactly. But as I've matured and, and around different folks, learning about the benefit of, of plant protein mm -hmm. and how really that's a, probably a better model long-term for digestive health and a lot of other things, but being open to those ideas. I think being around the right people lets you be open um, to try new things that you probably, growing up, were, were, were not so willing to try. <laughs> Knowledge is knowing that Brussels sprouts are good for me. Wisdom is actually eating them. Yes. Yeah. I'm knowledgeable, <laughs> but I'm not very wise. Yeah. Uh, this has been great. Uh, I learned a bunch today, and I hope all of you who are listening did as well. Thank you to Courtney and to Todd and to Crystal for joining us. And for all of you, join us next time again on 30 Brave Minutes. Thanks for having us. representatives of UNCP. The views and opinions expressed by any individuals during the course of these discussions are their own and do not necessarily represent the views, opinions, and positions of UNCP or any of its subsidiary programs, schools, departments, and divisions. While reasonable efforts have been made to ensure that information discussed is current and accurate at the time of release, neither UNCP nor the individual presenting the material makes any warranty that information presented in the original recording has remained accurate due to advances in technology, research, or industry standards. Thanks for listening to 30 Brave Minutes, and go Braves!